welcome back for another episode of the It's Murder Y'all podcast. I'm your host, Amber, and with me today is a man who can blame it all on his roots, my husband, Rob. Say hey, Rob. Fuck me, just showing up in boots. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Uh, we're going to need that. We're going to need that levity for today's episode. So before I found podcasts, my background show of choice was Forensic Files. When I wasn't compulsively watching the four-hour-long Tom Petty documentary, I've probably what was seen... that other guy you like to watch all the time, the, the real serious soft, like a hundred, four hundred oh, homicides. Um, Joe Kenda. Yeah, that's the that's the probably the best true crime show you've ever had me watch with you. I enjoyed his sense of humor and his commentary. You know, it's funny. My brother really likes Joe Kenda too. I fuck with Joe Kenda pretty heavy. Yeah. Um. So, and I'll you. I mean, you watched Forensic Files with me some. That's why. why yeah. You, you know, trilobal fibers and. I do, but I like Joe Kenda is probably the only one that I like actually really enjoyed. Yeah. I like Joe Kenda. Well, I've probably seen every episode of Forensic Files at least once or twice, and there were always two cases that stood out to me. The first one was the one where a dude kills his son for insurance money. And the forensic scientist used the, kid, rough. Yeah, used the kid's vomit to connect his father to the murder, which there's not DNA in vomit. It was, it's an interesting episode. That guy was a turd. Though. There's no DNA in vomit? No. There's saliva in vomit, is there not? I think that, I the, I think that, I the, trust stom- you. that the stomach acids like uh. destroy. Anyways, so the second case that stood out to me is the one we're going to cover today. Now, I honestly didn't think I would ever cover this case. It has been covered by several other podcasts, including Southern Fried True Crime, which is one of my all-time favorites. And I try not to cover cases that she's done, although she did also do the Santa Claus murders. This case is also hella brutal, which we're going to talk about more in a second. But something kept telling me that I needed to do this case. Like, I kept trying to research other cases. I kept being pulled in this direction, so I decided to go with it. So, I am going to warn everybody up front. This is probably the most brutal case that I've covered. Even more brutal than the Santa Claus murders, if you can believe it. And now, I'm a morbid person. And I had unfiltered access to the internet in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I've seen the OG faces of death. I've perused Rotten.com. I've seen the infamous Nikki Katsouris car crash photos. Side note, do not Google that. You will not be able to unsee it. Like, I have seen some crazy, gruesome shit. On the internet, but none of that is more disturbing than some of the stuff that I read while researching this case. Like saying that it's brutal is an understatement. And so I need you to know what you're getting into. I'm going to be discussing gruesome details from the autopsy report, not for entertainment value or shock value, but to illustrate the sheer brutality that this person went through and the evil of the person who did it to them. Also, this is my official trigger warning that this case does involve a horrific sexual assault as well as some other discussions of sexual harassment and sexual deviance. So if that is something that is upsetting to you, you may want to skip this one. And a final disclaimer is that I'm a crier, and there is a very good chance that I might cry, but I'm going to promise to try to hold it together. So that being said, if y'all are ready, let's get started with one of the worst cases I've ever researched. Crystal Faye Todd was born in Conway, South Carolina, and we are in South Carolina, again, still this week, Rob, Mm -hmm. on... On January 4th, 1974, making her a Capricorn queen, Crystal's mama, Miss Bonnie Faye Todd, had always wanted children but could never have any. So imagine her surprise when she found out at age 38 that she was pregnant. 
Crystal would be born three months after Bonnie Faye turned 39. Now, women having babies in their late 30s isn't a big deal these days, but it was much less common back in the 70s. Also, to put this in perspective for you, Rob, because this is not going to really, this will make sense to like four people listening to this podcast, but Miss Bonnie was born the same year that Meemaw was, and Crystal was born a year after Bubba. So this would be like Meemaw being Bubba's mama. Yeah. Yeah. So... Miss Bonnie considered Crystal to be her miracle baby, and she absolutely adored her. Miss Bonnie and Crystal were always very close, but became even closer after Crystal's daddy, Junior B. Todd, died in 1985 when Crystal was only 11 years old. Miss Bonnie and Crystal took care of each other and were best friends just as much as they were mother and daughter. By 1991, Crystal was a senior at Conway High School. Conway, South Carolina is about 30 minutes from Myrtle Beach. According to the 1990 census, Conway had a population of about 10,000 residents, and most people would consider it a small town. So because it was a small town, Crystal spent her weekends doing what most teenagers from small towns do. They drive around with friends, they loiter at the mall, or they go to sketchy parties in the boonies. On November the 16th, 1991, Crystal was eager to do some or all of those things. Three months earlier, Crystal had gotten into a car accident. As it was quoted in the book, An Hour to Kill, a true story of love, murder, and justice in a small town, Crystal, quote, wrecked the car down there at the light pole and totaled it, end quote. Unfortunately, Crystal had been at a party and had had a few beers, so she was arrested and charged with a DUI. Although she'd made a bad judgment call, the police knew that Crystal was a good kid, so they offered her a deal. If she'd become an informant and let them know when the underage drinking parties would happen, they would clear her DUI charge. But Crystal was a firm believer in snitches get stitches, and she told the cops that she ain't going to rat out her friends. So they ended up reducing the charge uh, to minor in possession, and they revoked her driver's license for three months. By November the 16th, though, Crystal had had her license back for four days, and she was ready to get behind the wheel of her 1991 metallic blue Toyota Celica, complete with a vanity license plate that said C. Todd. Miss Bonnie had bought it for Crystal as an early graduation present. That car was like her prized possession. She loved it. Earlier on in the My car, e- was it? Uh, a 1991 Toyota Celica. That's a good little car. Yeah. And it was in 1991, so it was brand new. Earlier on the evening of November the 16th, Crystal had gone to a dinner in nearby Marion to celebrate her grandmama's birthday. She left the dinner and drove over to the mall to wait for her best friend, Carla Allen, to finish her shift at the Belks. Crystal had originally planned to hang out with her cousin, Kevin James, but he never called her. She'd also been expecting a call from a boy she'd recently been hanging out with, but he didn't call her either. So she was like, fuck it, I'm going to hang out with my bestie. So Carla finishes her shift at 9 p.m. And the girls decide to go to a party at their friend Dana's pond house. Don't really know what a pond, I guess a house at a pond. Crystal wasn't super in a party mood, but she was kind of hoping she'd see this guy Sammy there. Crystal had known Sammy for about two years and he'd kind of been a turd to her the whole time. He'd hook up with her, then, then he'd act like she didn't even exist. So obviously... Crystal's best friend Carla hated him and couldn't see what Crystal saw in him, but Crystal was hooked. When they show up at the party, Crystal does see Sammy, but not only did he ignore her the whole time, he'd also brought a girl with him to the party. So Crystal was pissed because she had literally just ridden around with him and another friend the night before and things were great, but now he won't even acknowledge her presence. So Crystal and Carla spent pretty much the whole night just sitting on a random couch and talking. Funnily enough, at one point, the chick that Sammy had brought actually sat down on the couch next to Crystal, having no idea who Crystal was. And Sammy was quick to be like, hey, why don't don't you come back over here? By 11 o'clock, Crystal was over it. And she told Carla, we can go whenever you're ready. 
Carla had an 1115 curfew. So she's like, yeah, I probably need to dip. And they headed back to the mall so Carla could get her car. They get back to the mall at around 1113. So Carla's cutting it pretty close. Crystal's curfew wasn't till 1230. And she wasn't ready to call it a night yet. Carla asked her what she was going to do. And Crystal told her she's probably just going to go get something to eat. Maybe, you know, see what other people are doing. Carla was like, you're not going back to that party, are you? Crystal's like, no, I promise I won't go back to the party. So Carla gets out of Crystal's car and tells Crystal to be careful. Crystal's like, bruh, I only had one beer. I'm going to be fine. Crystal watches Carla get into her car and she gets situated. And then Crystal pulls out of the mall parking lot, headed toward Elm Street. Miss Bonnie was waiting up for Crystal to get home, as mamas tend to do. And when Crystal missed her 1230 curfew, Miss Bonnie started to worry, as mamas tend to do. By 1 a.m., she decided to call Carla since she knew that Crystal was had planned to go to a party with her. Carla tells Miss Bonnie that the last time she had seen Crystal was when they had parted ways at the mall around 1115-ish. After she hangs up with Carla, Miss Bonnie decides to call another one of Crystal's really good friends, Ken Register. Ken lived about a mile down the road, and him and Crystal had been friends since they were little. Although they had br- dated briefly when they were like 14, their relationship was much more of like a brother-sister kind of situation. So at about 1.15, Miss Bonnie calls Ken to see if he's seen Crystal. He answers the phone and tells her that he just got home and he hadn't seen Crystal. He'd been at a go-kart track in Ainer with his girlfriend. He tells Miss Bonnie that he'll call the local hospitals to see if maybe Crystal was there. I guess he was thinking that maybe she'd hit another light pole. He called Miss Bonnie back. Another short- light pole? Yeah. I, th- I think it was yeah, one of those things. Yeah, having a hit light poles, did she? Well, I think that was a thing where, you know, like you do one stupid thing when you're a teenager and it's held against you for the rest of your life. Like It makes more sense that it was noted that her friend was giving her shit if she was cool to drive. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure you're good? You're a fucking light pole, dude. Come on. I mean, I, me. I can't ever do makeup sitting down on the floor at my mother's house because of the makeup on the carpet incident of like 2002 um it's just you do a stupid thing and it's that's you're now known for that even if you only did it once so ken calls the hospitals he calls miss bonnie back and lets her know that crystal's not at the hospitals i think they have like two hospitals near conway but he told her you know don't worry she's probably at a friend's house and she probably fell asleep whatever and he told her that if crystal wasn't back in the morning he'd come over after church and he'd help her look for her Miss Bonnie told him that she knew she could always count on him because when it came to Crystal, that he was the best friend Crystal had ever had, and she just didn't know what she could ever, ever do without him. By 3.30 a.m., Crystal still isn't home, and Miss Bonnie is having a full-on panic attack. She calls 911, and she's so frantic on the phone that the dispatcher can't even tell if she's a man or a woman on the phone. Side note, Miss Bonnie is like country, country, and she's a smoker. And you can tell uh, she's, and you can tell she's a smoker. So I could absolutely see somebody getting confused if she was particularly upset. Also, Miss Bonnie reminds me so much of my Meemaw. It ain't even funny, except Meemaw don't smoke. But like, you can tell these are ladies. First of all, they're you know born six months apart. But they, these were ladies that stayed out in the sun a whole lot and didn't use no sunscreen. If mm-hmm. you're getting that getting that vibe, you know my Meemaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to show you a picture of Miss Bonnie later. It's a little uncanny. So, and they sound very similar. A fleshy raisin. Pretty much. Could say. <laughs> so, Miss Bonnie is trying to explain the situation to the dispatcher. And she's basically just word vomiting any detail that she can think of. But in her panic, she's giving every piece of information she can except for Crystal's name. And so, the dispatcher keeps asking, like, what is your daughter's name? And Miss Bonnie just keeps on word, word vomiting details that are not her name. But she finally mentions the vanity plate on the car. And dispatcher says, Miss Todd, Miss Bonnie Faye Todd, this is Mike, Mike Hill. You remember me? I taught Crystal piano when she was just a little bitty thing. Remember? She wanted to play for the church. 
And I feel like that is some hella small town shit. Like you call nine, you call nine one one, and it's the guy that taught your kid how to play piano. So, Miss Bonnie's happy that she's talking to somebody that she knows, and she begs him to help her find Crystal. Miss Bonnie tells him, "I just know something has happened to her, and if she's dead, I'll kill myself." Mike tries to calm her down oh, and tells her, down. "I know." He tells her, "I tell you what," and this is a direct quote. I tell you what. As soon as she comes home, call me and if and I'll see if a tr- patrolman can come out there and we'll give her a good scare just in case she ever thinks of pulling a stunt like this again. And then oh. he tries, yeah, I know. <laughs> then he tries to get her talking about Crystal, like, you know, how old is she? And he's like, you know, I bet Miss, I bet you're so proud of her. And he tells her that he bets Crystal will, would be home before too long and then she'll be able to give her a big old hug before she scolds her. Then he's like, okay, I'm going to go now, but you give me a call back when she comes in. So they hang up, but Miss Bonnie keeps making calls, seeing if anybody has seen or heard from Crystal. So finally, at 8 a.m., Miss Bonnie's at her wit's end, so she calls 911 again, and she tells him, I can't take it no more. Why won't you do something? I'm about to go crazy for worry. She ain't home yet, and I know that somebody's got her somewhere, and she's dead. I know she's dead. The morning dispatcher, which is not piano teacher Mike, sent Wade Petty, an officer with the Horry County Police Department, over to Miss Bonnie's house to file a missing persons report. When he got to Miss Bonnie's house, he asked her to describe Crystal. She said she was 17 years old with brown hair and blue eyes. She was pretty sure Crystal was about 5'3 and weighed about 112 pounds. When she'd last seen her, Crystal was wearing a pair of blue jeans, a print top, brown shoes, white socks, and was carrying a brown leather jacket. She also told him that a bunch of Crystal's friends had been out that morning riding around Conway looking for Crystal, and they found her car parked at Conway Middle School off of Elm Street. So while Miss Bonnie and Officer Petty are chatting, Ken Register stops by like he said he would. Ken told the officer that he hadn't seen Crystal the night before, but that she, that she was probably at one of the parties they'd been that had been going on that night. Ken wasn't much of a partier, though, so he didn't really have a lot of details about them. He told Officer Petty that Miss Bonnie had called him early that morning, around 1.15, and asked him to help her look for Crystal, but his mama didn't want him to go back out in the cold air since he'd already had a little bit of a cold. He told Miss Bonnie that he'd call the hospitals, and he did, but none of them had seen her. And that was all he knew. He gave Officer Petty his phone number in case he had more questions, shook the officer's hand, gave Miss Bonnie a hug, and left. Officer Petty left shortly after Ken and drove over to Conway Middle School to check out Crystal's car. The doors in the trunk were locked, and he could see Crystal's purse and jacket inside. There also did not appear to be a struggle. Meanwhile, over in the Maple community of Conway, 24-year-old Lloyd Allen and his older brother Willis were heading out to the woods to enjoy the first day of deer hunting season. Lloyd and their daddy had been out the day before and had seen some tracks out near Collins Jolly Road, so they were planning to go check out that area. From what I gather, Collins Jolly Road was an old dirt road that's like a little bit of a lover's lane since it was kind of out in the boonies. Yeah. Willis had been up talking to his girlfriend for about for about half the night, so Lloyd had trouble getting him out of bed. So it was almost 9 a.m. by the time the guys headed out, which I don't know shit about hunting, but I thought you went hunting at like the butt crack of dawn, not 9 a.m. Mm, it just depends. I mean... There's there's a couple of different approaches. Okay, well, I, I, hunting's not my thing. So, so it was almost nine a.m. by the time they got the guys headed out. They stopped at a gas station to give <laughs> to get Willis a coke and a corn dog because apparently he was starving. And then they headed toward the field where Lloyd had seen the deer tracks the day before. The guys are piddling down the road, and they see a big dark spot in the middle of the dirt road ahead of them. And Lloyd's like, "Oh, I guess somebody killed a deer here this morning." So they decide to get out of the truck to take a look and they notice a trail and Willis says somebody must have shot one and he run off over there in that ditch. So he walks over in that direction and he sees what looks like drag marks. Lloyd goes to where Willis had been standing and he could see like a 
big pool of blood and a bunch of smaller pools of blood. And he's like, dude, that's a lot of blood. Willis is following the drag marks. And all of a sudden he sees a brown shoe sticking up out of a ditch. And the shoe is connected to an ankle, which is connected to a very mutilated body. Willis immediately starts throwing up. And Lloyd is like, what the hell is going on? So between heaves, Willis tells him it's a dead body. And Lloyd thinks his brother's full of shit. So he walks over and sees that there is, in fact, a body there. Lloyd is like, I think it might be a woman, which made Willis gag again. Lloyd's like, no, seriously, like, look at the shoes and the clothes. It's got to be a woman. Willis is trying to stop throwing up. But Lloyd is trying to process what he's seeing. There's blood everywhere. Her hair was so bloody and matted that he couldn't even tell what color it was. And even worse, he realized that her lower abdomen had been cut open and her intestines were hanging out. Lloyd says to Willis, Jesus, that person was butchered up like an animal. Willis is like, nope, I'm done. I'm out. He says, come on, Lloyd, in case you ain't thought of it, somebody or something done that. And I don't want to be here if he comes back. And Lloyd was like, ooh, didn't think of that. Yeah, let's go. So they hop in the truck and drive as fast as they can to their sister's house. So they can call 911. The cops show up at the sister's trailer at about 10 a.m. And Lloyd, the sister, and their daddy, Lloyd Sr., lead the cops to where the body had been found. Willis was like, nope, I'm good. I'm going to stay here in the trailer. In an hour to kill, he was quoted as saying, quote, I was too scared and had seen all that body in those woods I ever hoped to see. You go hunting all your life and you don't never see nothing like that. When I seen them guts hanging out, when I seen her split open like she was, I said to myself, Willis, whoever did this was sick. You know what I'm saying? Just very, very sick, end quote. Horry County homicide detective Bill Knowles was getting ready for church when he got a call about a body being found out near Collins Jolly Road. Detective Knowles heads over to the scene and he's met by Officer Wade Petty, Lieutenant Gilbert Lewis, and Assistant Coroner Gerald Whitley. Officer Petty tells him that he'd filed a missing persons report for a girl earlier that morning, but they didn't know if it was her. Detective Knowles started surveying the scene and made his way into the ditch where the body was. There was so much blood on and around the victim that Detective Knowles didn't think there could be a drop left in their body. The evidence team arrives at about 1045. Evidence custodian Kelly Chestnut asked Detective Knowles if SLED, the state law enforcement division, would be involved, since most counties in South Carolina don't have their own forensic pathologists. Detective Knowles said they'd requested a SLED team, but the team couldn't get there till about 3 o'clock that afternoon. Because the body was partially undressed, they were assuming that a sexual assault had been involved, and Knowles was concerned that if they left the body out there, it could mess up their chances of getting usable DNA from the body. Now, it's important to remember, this is 1991. People didn't know about DNA the way that we know, that we do now. The first murder case ever to use DNA to catch a killer had only happened four years earlier, and it would be another three years before DNA testing would be made famous in the O.J. Simpson trial. Thankfully, though, Detective Knowles had completed a three-month FBI training academy in Quantico, Virginia, so he knew about DNA, and he knew it could be critical to solving this case. So Knowles and Chestnut start pr processing the scene. They could tell from the blood patterns that the victim had struggled with their killer, had been dragged about 10 feet either while they were dying or after they had died, and their body had been thrown into the ditch. A gold herringbone necklace was found next to the big blood stain, and a gold earring was found near the body. The victim was laying on her side with her belt and blue jeans unfastened and pulled down around her hips. Her shirt and bra were both torn open and pulled up, exposing her chest. Her face was covered in blood, and they could see a gaping slash wound across her throat. She was covered in stab and slash wounds, and as the Allen brothers had noticed when they found her, she had a cut on her lower abdomen with some of her intestines protruding from the wound. Police removed a high school ring from the victim's bloody hand, and when they looked closer, they saw Crystal Faye Todd engraved on the inside of the ring. 
Detective Knowles now had to figure out how to tell Miss Bonnie Faye Todd that her baby was gone. Detective Knowles, Officer Petty, and Assistant Coroner Whitley drove over to Miss Bonnie's house and arrived at about the same time that her nephew, Kevin James, did. She met them at the door, hoping they were bringing her good news. Detective Knowles took a deep breath and said, I'm sorry to have to bring you this bad news. And Miss Bonnie interrupted, saying, you found my crystal and she's dead, ain't she? Detective Knowles replied, yes, ma'am. It is my unfortunate responsibility to inform you that your daughter has been found dead. She invited them into the house and they all sat down. Miss Bonnie sat on the couch with her arms crossed, rocking back and forth. She said, well, if she ain't alive, then I don't want to live neither. She starts to sob and then she starts to scream. After about 10 minutes, Miss Bonnie calmed down enough to tell them everything she could about Crystal. She tells them about how Crystal's daddy had been sick when she was little and she took care of him before he died. And she basically watched him die. Miss Bonnie said, you know, it was so bad I had to take her to the doctor and get something on account of her nerves. As a side note, my meemaw takes nerve pills and she has as long as I've been alive. And to this day, I have no idea what those nerve pills are. Like, is meemaw hopped up on Zannies? It is quite possible. They're just, you know, funny. They're just nerve pills. So it seems like your meemaw would be one that didn't need nerve pills. Um, me. Meemaw's interesting because she's so country and so old school. And also, Meemaw, she's just Meemaw. I don't know any other way to explain it. You get it. But I think that she she's always had problems with her nerves. Like, not chronic, but I remember even being little, she would talk about her nerves. And so she had those nerve pills. And she might be nursing the same prescription that she had when I was little because it's Meemaw. So now and- at this point, they're just a placebo. <laughs> Maybe so. Um, what's funny is like, so y'all don't care about my Meemaw, but in her house, Meemaw has a washing machine and a dryer, but Meemaw doesn't use the dryer because she hang dries all of her clothes and she puts her stuff on top of the washing machine and the dryer. So like her comb for her hair um, and like her medicine bottles, but her nerve pills, she never kept with her regular medicine. Her nerve pills are always in a cabinet in the kitchen, which was also, it, I don't understand. They're different. They're not normal. They're different. They're different. They're nerve pills, which mm-hmm. maybe Meemaw's hopped up on Zannies. Meemaw's got, maybe they're quaaludes. <laughs> Meemaw's out here looted out. Quite possibly. They connect a lot of dots. So Miss Bonnie talked about how much Crystal did around the house. Miss Bonnie worked the night shift at a microcomputer component manufacturing plant in Myrtle Beach. So Crystal did a lot of the daily chores, the cooking, the washing, the mopping. She even cut the grass. Crystal liked everything to be clean, too, so she cleaned house all the time. She also hated smoking. That was probably the one thing Crystal didn't like about her mama, and she especially didn't like for Miss Bonnie to smoke in the car. If she did, she would immediately clean out the ashtray as soon as she got home. She also refused to date anybody who smoked. That was pretty much a deal breaker for her. And this was not said anywhere. This is just me connecting dots and making assumptions. But based on how strongly Crystal felt about smoking, I would venture to guess that her daddy died of lung cancer. But again, that's just, that's just me trying to connect dots. So Miss Bonnie told Detective Knowles everything she could think of about the last day she saw her daughter alive. And she let him and Officer Petty search Crystal's bedroom. After leaving Miss Bonnie's house, Detective Knowles headed over to Carla Allen's house since she had been with Crystal the night she died. Carla's daddy intercepted Detective Knowles at the door. Carla was obviously devastated. I mean, her She just found out her best friend died and her daddy felt like talking to the detective would upset her even more. Detective Knowles was like, look, I get it. I have teenage daughters. I get that you want to protect her, but Carla is the last known person to see Crystal alive. And we need to find out everything that she knows. 
Mr. Allen was still hesitant, so Detective Knowles was real with him. He was like, look, I know there are a lot of rumors going around already, hashtag small town life, but this is way worse than people think it is. Knowles tells him, quote, I'm going to show you something, sir, not to shock you, but to convince you that we absolutely have to speak to Carla about this. I apologize in advance, and you understand that this is done in the strictest of confidence, end quote. He pulls a crime scene photo out of his pocket and hands it to Mr. Allen. Mr. Allen's immediately shocked, and he's like, are you sure that's Crystal? And Detective Knowles confirms that it is. And Mr. Allen's quiet for a minute. He takes a few drags off a cigarette and says, Carla cannot see that. And Detective Knowles tells him, no, 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 sir. She won't see it under no circumstances. You have my word. I'll do my best to protect her through this, through this in every possible way. So Mr. Allen lets Detective Knowles in the house, and he sits down with Carla to have her basically reconstruct Crystal's night. An hour after Detective Knowles left, Carla told her daddy that she needed to go visit Miss Bonnie. It was really the last thing she wanted to do, but she felt like she owed it to Crystal to make sure her mama was okay. So her daddy drives her over to Miss Bonnie's house, and there are cars parked everywhere. When she gets out of the car, she sees Crystal's cousin Kevin standing over by some bushes, and they chat for a second. Then she notices someone kind of like kneeling, kneeling near Miss Bonnie, and Carla's like, who's that? And Kevin tells her that it was just Ken Register thrown up in the bushes. He said that some lady had given him some punch that made him sick. Kevin and Carla made their way into the house trying to find Miss Bonnie, but there were people everywhere. So it's kind of posted up somewhere and talked for a while. At I some like point, Ken Register thrown up in the bushes is a red herring right now. I'm just throwing a lot of information at you. So at some point, Ken's mama, Shirley Register, walks past them and they follow her back to Crystal's bedroom where Miss Bonnie, Ken, and I believe Ken's girlfriend were sitting. Miss Bonnie was on the phone and told everybody to hush. Apparently, it was one of the Allen brothers who had found Crystal's body. He just called to give his condolences, but once Miss Bonnie realized that he was one of the ones who found Crystal, she wanted him to tell her every detail about how he found her. At this point, police hadn't told her much. I guess they were trying to protect her, but she wanted to know everything, and knowing me, I'd be the same way. After the guy, after talking with the guy, Miss Bonnie told the group that had congregated in the room, youngins, he said she was butchered like a hog. I'm using a lot of direct quotes in this story, even if I don't say quote, end quote. That was a direct quote. At this point, Shirley's like, okay, I'm out. And she motioned to Ken that she was dipping out. So he got up and followed. When he was outside, some of Crystal and Ken's friends told him that they were going to ride over to Collins Jolly Road where they had found Crystal. Did he want to go? And he was like, nah, y'all go ahead. I don't think I could handle it. No judgment. But if my friend had been brutally murdered, I don't right. think... I don't yeah, think I'm not I'd, going over there to check it out. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to go see her blood spot on the road. I no. mean, I'm morbid, so it might not be out of the realm of possibility. But that just, I, I just, I don't know. That's weird. So, but people do weird things when they're grieving. So the day after the murder, Crystal's autopsy was performed by Dr. James Downs at the Medical University of South Carolina at Charleston. I'm about to describe the findings of the autopsy, and it is going to be rough. So prepare yourselves. Crystal had 35 stab wounds, seven bruises, and multiple abrasions. 20 wounds were potentially fatal, and at least four were suffered after her death. She had 11 stab wounds to her face and head. Three of the stab wounds were so forceful that they penetrated the skull and entered the brain, which is something that none of the pathologists at the Medical University of South Carolina had ever seen before. And for reference, just Dr. Downs alone had performed or witnessed over 800 autopsies and they had never seen a knife penetrate a skull. Police had noticed offensive wounds to Crystal's left hand, which was weird because Crystal was right-handed, and you wouldn't and you would think that you would try to defend yourself with your dominant hand. Yeah. Well, the autopsy showed that the stab wound just above her left ear 
paralyzed the right side of her body. So she couldn't use her right hand to defend herself. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how scary that would be trying to fight off an, an attacker when half of your body is paralyzed. Like that is just, uh, I can't wrap my brain around it. The Sun News newspaper reported that, quote, three slashing wounds cut Todd's neck from ear to ear, measuring 10 inches long and nearly decapitating her. The only thing that kept her head on was her spinal column, end quote. Crystal suffered five wounds to her right lung, one wound that went through her breastbone and into her liver, another wound that penetrated her left lung, two wounds to her back, with one cutting her aorta and another striking a bone in her spinal column. Three wounds to Crystal's lower abdomen measured six inches long and three inches wide, exposing her intestines. These wounds were made after Crystal had already died. The autopsy showed that Crystal had been brutally sexually assaulted. Semen was found in her mouth, vagina, and anus, and there was extensive bruising to her genital area. I'm about to quote Dr. Down's court testimony, and it is god-awful, so feel free to fast-forward just a smidge. According to An Hour to Kill, during the trial, Dr. Downs explained that the muscles of her anus were stretched out, not having contracted before she died, indicating that Crystal was anally raped while being stabbed, while being stabbed, while bleeding to death and after she died. I told you this is horrific. Because semen had been found, analysts would be able to extract DNA to hopefully lead to her killer, but that would take some time. In the face of such a vicious crime, rumors were swirling, and with it being the early 90s, of course, there were whispers that it had to have been the work of a satanic cult. In the true crime world, we call it satanic panic. According to Wikipedia, satanic panic is a moral panic consisting of over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic rituals starting in the United States in the 1980s, spreading through many parts of the world by the late 1990s and persisting today. Basically, if any crazy shit goes down, it's got to be devil worshippers. Spoiler alert. It's it very it's very rarely devil yeah. worshippers. It's oftentimes good quote good Christian people. So <laughs> as they say. <laughs> yeah. So Ori County Police Chief Jay Gordon Harris actually had to address the rumors in a press conference saying, I'm not going to get into whether it was satanic or ritualistic. We have nothing at this point in time to lead us to that conclusion. At this point, police and Miss Bonnie were confident that Crystal most likely knew her killer because there wasn't a sign of struggle around her car and she wouldn't have ridden off with somebody she didn't know. Miss Bonnie told the Sun News, I've always told Crystal, if anybody ever captures you, it don't matter if you're going 55 miles an hour down the road, you open that door and jump out. It's better to be broke all to pieces than to be killed. I love Miss Bonnie. Because police were thinking it was probably someone Crystal knew, they started looking for anyone in her orbit that might be sus. One name that quickly popped up was Andy Tyndall. Investigators had found a notebook of Crystal's where she had doodled his name a bunch, doing the thing that like all teen girls do where it's like Crystal plus Andy. Police start asking around about Andy. Apparently, Crystal had met Andy about a week before through a mutual acquaintance. In an interview with the show Stolen Voices, Buried Secrets, one of Crystal's high school teachers said of Andy, quote, he was a bodybuilder. He worked out. You know, he was in good shape. I don't swing that way, but I mean, if you look at a picture of him, he was a very attractive man, okay? And I can see why the girls would have a crush on him, end quote. I was like, you had to throw in that you don't swing that way. I ain't gay, but that dude's, he's pretty good looking fella. (laughs) Right. I ain't gay or nothing, but I'm just saying. Thank God. Dude. Like, toxic masculinity makes it where y'all can't even compliment another man. Me and my friend group will throw out a compliment at each other. Y'all I'm do. just saying, it is, it is, come on, it's 2024, boys. Come on. Yeah. You can say, I love you to your best friend. <laughs> Let's just chill. Correct. Just, uh, I tell my best friends, I love them all the time. 
You call them boo too. It's cute. That's funny. Yes, it is. So Andy was allegedly a little bit of a hottie. And at least according to that high school teacher. And as it turns out, he was also a bad boy. Or should I say a bad man? Because Andy Tyndall was actually Andrew Von Tyndall, a 31-year-old married man who was wanted in Alabama for a probation violation. And we don't think that Crystal knew that. Police are immediately like, aha, we've got our man. So where did she meet this Andy? Through somebody that she knew. Like they had like a mutual acquaintance. Oh. And she'd only known him for a week. And she's a, she was 17? Yes. But she didn't know he was 31. I mean, I mean, not. I mean, I'm 30. 31 ain't 22, bud. You know, there's a big difference, I feel like. I mean, Unless you're a, just a short, hairless man. Not to toot my own. Not to nope. toot my horn, but I'm almost 40 and I've gotten mistaken for less than 30 before yeah Yeah. i'm gonna keep that in my back pocket forever so so police are immediately like aha we got our man the problem was they actually had to find him police thought they were close but andy spotted their police car and he pulled uh he's a runner he's a track star off into the woods and the police were, were like we ain't got time for your shit bring out them police puppies and they had bloodhounds trailing him for most of the night by morning, he was so exhausted that he actually called law enforcement and turned himself in, which is, I think is very funny. So police interviewed Andy for five hours. They were convinced that he was Crystal's killer, and they tried everything they could think of to get him to confess. But he was adamant that he had nothing to do with her murder. I actually don't even know that he knew that she had been killed. Police were like, fine, if you're so confident that you didn't do it, why don't you give us a blood sample so we can compare it to the DNA we have? And he's like, bet. And he immediately consented to a blood draw. Q investigators' disappointment when it comes back that his blood was not a Why did he run, though? What's up with that? Well, because he Oh, because of the... Yeah, I right. Never mind. Yeah. I answered my question there. Yes. Um, Andy Tyndall was not their guy. So they had to go back to the drawing board and decide, you know, let's just go ahead and take DNA from, like, every guy that Crystal knows and just test everybody. So... You think? Holy shit. That's it's amazing not, release it's, work. It's 1991. This is actually the first case that in South Carolina that used DNA for a murder case. So it's unprecedented. So we have to cut him a little bit of slack. So during this time, Miss Bonnie is just trying to cope with life without her miracle baby. She told Forensic Files, I don't really have a life no more. I just exist. I go from one day to the next and I don't even want to get up out of the bed and face another day. It's just horrible. It don't get any better. I just wish it could have been me instead of her. I've lived a long time. She hadn't lived no time. She leaned heavily on friends and family, especially Ken Register. Ken and Crystal have been so close. And I think maybe... Maybe having someone that was so, what you doing, bud? Do a little tappy tap. <laughs> you were doing a little tappy tap. What you typing? I was letting I was letting someone know that I am busy. <laughs> Are you? Do you need to finish? You can finish. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so she was leaning heavily on friends and family, especially Ken Register. Ken and Crystal had been so close. And I think that maybe having somebody that was so close to Crystal gave Miss Bonnie some comfort. You know, he'd come over all the time to check on Miss Bonnie to see how the investigation was going. Had she heard any news? He was even one of Crystal's pallbearers at her funeral. Miss Bonnie thought a lot of Ken and the big brother relationship he'd had with Crystal. And she she liked knowing that Crystal was always safe with Ken. After the murder, Miss Bonnie told Miss Bonnie told him, Ken, I feel like if you was there, you could have saved her. I just bet you the last words on her lips was your name. She probably died calling your name to save her. That's a lot of pressure to put on a person. But I mean, that's how I feel about you. Like, you're someone that I always feel safe with because I know that you're someone who's going to protect me no matter what. Like, you and my daddy. 
and probably my brother. Yeah, I'd kill somebody about you. Um, <laughs> thanks. So, uh, Detective Knowles, he's determined to find Crystal's killer. He had made her a promise the day her body was found that he was going to make sure that she got justice. So him and his team decide to bring in David Caldwell, a behavioral analysis with SLED. And remember, SLED, it, it, it's basically like, you know how in Alabama they have the Alabama Bureau of Investigation? They've mm -hmm. got the GBI in Georgia. This is like theirs. So SLED, State Law Enforcement Division. Uh, so they called David Caldwell in to develop a behavioral profile of the murder. And I think that the concept of behavioral profiles is just fascinating to me. The fact that just by looking at a crime scene and by looking at the details of a murder, they can capture this portrait of characteristics of the killer. Now, a behavioral profile doesn't tell you definitively that the killer has all of these traits and you can't rule somebody out because a suspect doesn't fit the profile, but it does give investigators a place to start. Caldwell's report wasn't released to the public at the time, but it was outlined in the An Hour to Kill book. According to the behavioral profile, as stated in the book, and I'm going to read the whole thing because some of it is correct and it's cool. Crystal's killer was most likely a white male between 20 and 25 years old. Recklessness is probably a noted characteristic. He has some social skills, can smile, can converse. He's not too scary. The murder is not suggestive of a lot of forethought or planning. It is expected that he transferred blood to his automobile after the crime. He is an angry man with some generalized anger towards most people. Many people have noticed that something is not quite right with him. He is probably episodically employed. He is not a businessman or professional person. He probably has trouble with policies and coworkers and consequently has not had long-term employment. His performance generally at work would be cyclical. He may work well one week and not so well the next week. We will expect cyclical social performance as well. He may be nice one day, ornery the next. Uh, people who know him may say that one never knows what to expect from him. He has no tremendous need for money. He is not chronically unemployed. He is not worried about where he's going to get his next meal. He's able to make ends meet. There's probably another person, perhaps a family member, on whom he is partially financially dependent. He is not a cocaine addict who steals money or valuables thinking about his next fixed. Not his next fix. His next fix. He is not the product of a wholesome, nurturing family environment. Of course not. He just butchered a girl. In his formative years, he had no solid male role model. He probably had a missing father, almost certainly an emotionally missing father, perhaps divorced. Maybe the father worked all the time. Maybe he traveled a lot. Maybe he was dead. Maybe he was an alcoholic. He's probably a local person from Horry County, familiar with the side of the body recovered. The side of the body recovery? That's what I wrote down. Either way, uh, either he lives near there or a family member lives near there, or perhaps he hunts, fishes, or works in that area. At any rate, he has been there before. He is impulsive and is angry at the world. He has a large chip on his shoulder. Life has not been easy for him, and deep down, he feels someone must pay for, those, for the way his life has gone. The 1130 rendezvous with a victim could be the result of having gotten off a second shift or perhaps a result of having left a party earlier that evening. He feels fairly confident that he will not be a suspect. He does not believe he will be associated with her that night. He would probably be best be described as not an intimate acquaintance, but a peripheral acquaintance. He sees himself as a social outcast and probably rightfully so. He probably is not widely accepted by his peers. He is unable to sustain a warm, nurturing relationship. If he was married, there were lots of problems. Whether or not he had a specific plan to kill that night is equivocal. I don't know what that means. And I forgot to look it Unequivocal? up. Unequivocal? No, he's equivocal. Uh, 
whether or not he had a specific plan to kill that night is equivocal. And before I read that sentence, I thought I knew what the word equivocal meant, but now I'm questioning because that felt like a weird word choice. One hallmark. I of feel his- like in like usage of that word, I feel like it means that he like killing somebody wasn't necessarily on his docket for that evening. It just kind of worked out that way. For yeah. Me. That's what I'm thinking too. I still feel like that word's a weird choice. Also in reading this, I feel like I missed my career path. I should have been a behavioral analyst because like I like reading people and also I like true crime. Anyways, uh, one hallmark of his life would be frustration. The stress of everyday life is tough on him. He projects his problems like I'm not the problem. They are. When he was in school, he was not the type to say, whoa, yeah, the teacher's right. I should have. He's the type to say they're full of it. He does not enjoy the reputation of being particularly smart, which is a funny way of somebody of saying somebody's stupid. He does not enjoy the reputation of being particularly smart. I love it. He regularly carries a knife, shows it off, considers it to be part of his image. He likes to think of of himself as macho and tries to pose himself as macho. He probably drinks the long neck buds and Jack Daniels. How they get that from a murder is beyond me, but it's Mm. interesting. He probably cannot take protracted pressure. However, he probably handles acute, immediate pressure very well. He probably does not have a lot to make him attractive to peer females. For the most part, females from his peer group do not have a lot to do with him. He is not witty. He is not charming. He would probably be attractive to younger girls simply because he is older. Perhaps what he could offer peer females would be drugs or maybe money, although it's not expected that he would have much money. He has come to the attention of law enforcement before, perhaps when he was 12 or 13. He was torturing animals, starting fires, committing random acts of vandalism. He's probably not doing much dating. He is not a ladies' man. He may have date rapes in his past, maybe raped a cousin. The way they just threw in, he may have raped a cousin. I was like, what? That's not okay. Uh, but he's not doing stranger or kidnap rapes. He's not doing burglary burglary rapes. Following intoxication on the night of the murder is a good bet. It is possible that two perpetrators were involved. After the commission of the murder, this perpetrator probably would have gone straight to a safe haven, either to his home or to a relative's house, as opposed to going out and setting up an alibi somewhere. It should be considered that this safe haven might be in the same direction from the crime scene as the crime scene is from her abandoned car. It should be considered that after staying in town for a few weeks, he will leave for an ostensibly good reason, such as to visit or live with a relative or for some employment opportunity in another town. So I did not later on discuss all the things about the person that did it and what they have in common with that profile. But, you know, after you've listened to it, think back, think think of how many things this person had in common because... It's quite a few things. So investigators have the behavioral profile in their back pocket and they're continuing to go through their list of people who were close to Crystal. So they decide they probably need to go ahead and and interview Ken since he was close to Crystal and they hadn't really talked to him since the morning that Crystal was found. They hadn't really seen a need to though because he had an alibi. He was at the go-kart track with his girlfriend. Then he was at home with his mama and he was a close family friend. I mean, he was a freaking pallbearer at her funeral. They really wanted to make sure that they were dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's, though. So on January 6, 1992, I actually think it was January 26, and I think that I just wrote this in a hurry. An officer and a sled agent drove over to the register's house to talk to Ken. Nobody was home, so the officer left his card on the door with a note saying that they'd like Ken to call him. Ken's mama, Shirley, calls him back a couple days later and was like, what do y'all want with my son? And they're like, we're just trying to cross people off our list. He's not a suspect or anything. We just want to talk to him. So she's like, oh, okay, I'll let him know. A couple days later, Ken called the police department and arranged for an interview. So Ken went over to Miss Bonnie's house, which was a common occurrence at this point, but he was in a mood about having to do the interview. Miss Bonnie's like, why are you letting this stress you out? 
And he says he's worried because the police hadn't found anybody to blame it on yet. So they're looking for somebody to pin it on and he didn't want it to be him. And Miss Bonnie says, well, Lord, it ain't going to be you, Ken. You didn't do it, did you? And he says, it don't matter now. They can't find anybody. So pull your blood and rig it to make it look like you did it. Miss Bonnie's like, you're being ridiculous. I even told Bill Knowles, you ain't the one. But Ken keeps going on and on about it. He tells Miss Bonnie, well, don't be surprised when they arrest the wrong one. And then he starts talking about how you can beat the blood tests. Miss Bonnie's like, what the hell are you talking about? And he explains, you can take somebody else's blood to give them. Like, does he not understand how blood tests work? This is not mm. like, this is not like a drug test where you can take someone else's pee strapped to your thigh. But apparently he doesn't know that. And like, also where, how or where would you get somebody else's blood to take with you? Anyways, Miss Bonnie's niece, Dina, which I believe is Kevin's mama, comes over during Ken's diatribe. And Miss Bonnie's like, Ken's talking crazy. Can you please talk some sense into him? And Dina's like, what did I just walk in on? And so Miss Bonnie explains that, you know, Ken's whole deal. And Dina's like, dude, you're talking crazy. Kevin told her, it ain't no joke. And I got to go on Monday. I know they're going to pull my blood. And if it comes out to be me, they're framing the wrong one. And the three of them keep going back and forth until Ken finally leaves. And Dina asks Miss Bonnie, like, what do you reckon that was about? And they start talking about how weird he was being. And Miss Bonnie's like, hmm, some don't feel right here. So on Monday, Detective Knowles was chatting with Officer Dale Long and was like, you're interviewing Ken Register today, right? And Officer Long was like, yep, at three, why? And Knowles is like, well, it's the weirdest thing. Miss Bonnie called me and said that Ken was being real weird about coming in to talk to us. So now she's kind of suspicious. And Officer Long was like, do you want me to say something to Ken during the interview about him acting weird to Miss Bonnie? And Knowles was like, yeah, you might as well throw that in. So Ken's interview was scheduled for 3 p.m., but for some reason, he decided to show up like several hours early. Detectives bring him into an interrogation room and they start asking him questions. Ken explains that he had known Crystal and her family his whole life and her cousin Kevin was his best friend. Detective Long asked if if Ken had ever dated Crystal and he was like, yeah, for about a month in 1988. The detective asked. How old is Ken? Ken's 18. He, he's. I thought he would. So. Was he not the piano teacher? No, Ken is the best friend. Okay, so piano teacher, piano teacher was Mike Hill. He was the nine one one dispatcher. Uh, okay, all right. I'm he, sorry, I got no, my names switched up. I thought that the nine one one dispatcher's name was Ken for some reason. I, I, I've been this whole time thinking that guy. No, you're fine. Um, okay. so no, just to recap, everybody. So Ken, he's 18. He had actually already graduated high school. Crystal was a senior. Ken lived about a mile down the road from the Todd house. And so he had grown up with Crystal. So they're like besties. And since Crystal died, he's been super close to Bonnie. Like him and Bonnie have been real tight. Like he's coming over all the time, like consoling her and all this stuff. So Detective Long asked if Ken had ever dated Crystal. And he was like, yeah, for about a month in 1988. The detective asked him, the detective asked if him and Crystal had ever had sex. And he said, no. The detective asked, ask if he knows any guys that crystal might have been involved with if he knew any of her close friends and if she'd ever if she had ever mentioned drugs according to an hour to kill ken said quote well one time when crystal was drinking she told me about the time she was with her friend and they smoked dope i don't know if this was true or not because i never actually saw her use any type of drug i did hear about the time she got drunk and ended up shitting all over things that's how she got the <laughs> name <laughs> that's how she got the name shitter end quote wow which i'm like Really, yeah, the poor girl is dead. And you're going to tell how she got the name Shitter because she got drunk and shat on stuff. Like, I hate you. So you got to be pretty drunk to shit on stuff. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a little too much grown up drink. A little bit too much. So cops asked how he described Crystal's reputation, like what the guy said about her. And Ken said, quote, 
I guess I'd have to describe her reputation as loose. That's what all my friends said. But I don't really think she did as much as this guy says she did. People like to brag about stuff that never happens, end quote. I'm sorry. I'm just not about disparaging the character of a dead person. Well, unless they deserve it. Crystal did not deserve it. She was a 17-year-old girl and they are making, he's making her sound bad and I don't like it. So they asked Ken about the last time he saw her and he said it was like three or four days before her murder. And then they talked about what he had done on the evening of November 16th. After that, they're pretty much done. The interview took about 45 minutes. Detectives, they don't have any reason at this point to think he was involved. They went ahead just to cross him off the list and they asked him to take a blood test. And Ken hesitated for the first time in the interview. And he asked him, what do you want my blood for? And one of the detectives explained that it's for DNA comparisons. It's a standard thing. They've asked everybody for their blood. Ken's like, what's DNA? So the detective explained that, you know, it's a genetic fingerprint and no two people have the same DNA. So we're comparing each other, each person's DNA to the DNA we found at the crime scene. So after explaining the DNA, the detectives are like, so Bonnie Faye told us you had some concerns about the test. And she said you mentioned beating the test. So how exactly could you beat the test? And he tells them, oh, all you have to do is just carry someone else's blood with you and give that to them as a sample. And detectives explained that that's not how blood tests work. And that you go to the hospital and they physically draw your blood from you and give it to the police sealed by the doctor. So there's no way that anyone could fake the test. So ask Ken again if he will submit to a blood test. And Ken asks if he can talk to his mama about it first. Let me talk to my mama. The detective is like, sure, you can talk to anybody you want to. You're 18 years old. You're an adult. This whole thing is completely voluntary. So it's up to you whether or not you sign the form and consent. We've asked a bunch of people to do the same thing, though. And Ken's like, well, what did they do? And the detective says, everybody that has been asked to this date has consented. So Ken's like, okay, I'll work it. I'll do it, too. So an officer escorts Ken to Conway Hospital for the blood draw. And on the way, Ken told the officer, you know, I don't have to do this. In fact, I shouldn't be doing this at all. My mama warned me and told me not to say anything or do anything till she talked to a lawyer first. He kept asking more questions about DNA and how DNA could lead to somebody getting arrested. And the officer explained everything the best he could. At the hospital, they drew three vials of blood and took head hair, pubic hair, and saliva samples. The doctor sealed everything and handed it to the officer, and Ken was good to go. So Ken immediately drove over to where Kevin, again, his best friend and Crystal's cousin, worked, and he was bitching about how awful the police were to him and how they made him feel like a criminal and all that stuff. Two days later, he went over to Miss Bonnie's house, and he was bitching to her about it, too. He said, they treated me terrible. They kept asking me, if you could find who killed Crystal, what would you do to that person? And Miss Bonnie was like, well, what'd you say? And he said, I said, I guess put him in jail. Miss Bonnie was like, uh, they deserve a heap worse than that. Then Ken started talking about the whole how the whole time he was at the hospital, all he could think was that he wanted his mama. Before he left, he told Miss Bonnie, they're fixing to arrest the wrong one. Now, I know if they said I did it, they rigged my blood. Ken who was someone who had been so close to Miss Bonnie over the past couple of months, who constantly came over to visit, constantly called to check in and see how the investigation was going. Someone who had comforted and consoled her, never called back or went to Miss Bonnie's house ever again after that conversation. In February of 1992, investigators received word that one of the 52 samples they'd collected matched to DNA from the semen found in Crystal's body. And it didn't just match. It like match matched. Analysts observed a nine-band match, and according to a trial expert, prior to this case, the most bands observed to match between two individuals had been three out of nine, and therefore, it was extraordinary to observe a nine-band match of five separate pieces of DNA. 
the frequency that this pattern would occur in the population was one in 250 million. So the chance that, that the killer is someone other than this sample is one in 250 million. Beyond, hmm. the, beyond the DNA match, the killer had a fairly rare blood type. So they had type O, which is not rare, but apparently beyond just types, we have subtypes of blood. I'm not even going to pretend to understand this, but this person had type o, type o blood with a PGM or phosphoglucomutase subtype of one minus two plus, and they were a secretor. I don't fully understand what all that means, but from what I gather, only like 2% of the population has that blood type. And when you factor in, like they knew based on DNA that it was a white man. So much, much less than 1% of the population could be the killer. Investigators were told that the- They had him pegged, what you're saying. Yes. Investigators were told that the 48th sample out of 52 tested was the match to the killer. And that sample belonged to Johnny Kenneth Register II. Ken Register. Mm-hmm. On February 18th, 1992, four detectives drove out to Santee Cooper, which was the utility company where, I think it's like Alabama Power, basically, where Ken Register worked on a line crew. At 9.31 a.m., detectives asked Ken to sign a statement transcribed from the interview he had with the police a month earlier. He was noticeably nervous about this, and he asked him several times what the paper was. He finally read over the statement, signed it, and asked the detectives, how's the investigation going? What's happening? According to the Sun News, at that point, Detective Russell Jordan, who was on Register's left, and Detective David Avent on Register's right, each took one of Register's wrists and handcuffed him behind his back real quick. Like, they had it planned out. Because I don't include this in here, but Ken was a strong guy. Like, he, I think he was like 5'8", 5'10", but he was real stocky. He could, I think he could squat thrust like 300-something. He could bench press like 200-something. So he was pretty strong. Um, So they had to like, I mean... You're like six inches taller than he was. So obviously you're going to be stronger than that. But they had to coordinate it because they were afraid he was going to fight. So they like swooped in, both grabbed an arm and handcuffed him. They read him as Miranda rights. Ken protested his arrest saying, I wasn't even around that night. I couldn't have done it. There's been a mistake. You'll see my mama can clear it up. I want to call my mama. He kept repeating, I want my mama literally all day. Mama's boys. I don't understand that shit. So this 18 year old guy all day long. I want my mama. Like, bruh. I don't so, need my mama. I'll figure that shit out on my own. Right. Just, maybe that's just my upbringing. But. And I think I, I think I wrote this somewhere else. But like, also, if you're being arrested, unless your mama is a lawyer, maybe mama ain't the one you need yeah. to be calling. So while Ken was on his way to the police station, another set of detectives headed over to Ken's house with a search warrant. His dad, Kenny, who is Johnny Kenneth Register the first had gotten wind of the search and he had sped home from work. An officer told Kenny that they had a warrant to search the property and they wanted to go into the house. Kenny was pretty much belligerent at this point. He said, this is a direct, all of these of what Ken, of what Kenny is about to say, these are all direct quotes. No, the hell you ain't. You tell me what you're going in for. The officer repeated his statement, told Kenny that they had the legal right to enter the house and search. And Kenny said, I'll sure as hell go in with you and see what you find. And the detective was like, uh, no, you can't do that. And Kenny said, what? Who the hell is going to keep me out of my own goddamn house? The detective is like, look, we're just saying it would be better if you let us go in and do what we need to do. But we're going to go in anyways. So Kenny finally relented and let, led the detectives to Ken's bedroom. So there's a lot of information I had to leave out because 
this is going to be a very long episode, but off the top of my head, they found a knife box, an empty knife box that is consistent with what the murder weapon would have been. They also, they searched Ken's car and they found some microscopic traces of blood inside the car. So officers delivered a handcuffed Ken register to Detective Knowles at the Horry County Police Department, and he was led to an interrogation room. Detective Knowles tells Ken that they're going to ask him some questions and it's going to take a while. Ken told the detective, there's no questions. I ain't done nothing. I want to call my mama. Detective Knowles and sled agent David Caldwell questioned Ken for hours as he continued to whine for his mama. He kept saying that he didn't do it. There was a mistake. They weren't listening, blah, blah, blah. Detectives tell him, look, we've got your DNA. We know you did it. And Ken's like, that's a lie. And detectives tell him, quote, no, sir, we got it. We wouldn't have arrested you if we didn't have the proof. The DNA don't lie. Then they tell him, we've got everything. We got your tire print, son. Match your car. Ken says, that's a lie, too. And that actually was a lie. They did not have tire prints, but cops are allowed to do that. They can lie to you and tell you they have evidence that they don't. So they tell him, no use to deny it, son. We got them. And we got a lot more than that. Just tell us why you killed her. That's all we want to know. Ken says, I want my mama. She'll clear this up. And Cobble says, there's no mama, no daddy. There's nobody but you, boy. Tell us how, why you killed the girl. That was a direct quote, too. They go back and forth and for a while. And finally, Ken says, I'm not going to tell you about it till I talk to my mama. Which, I mean, I'm not going to tell you about it. What is it? Did you just confess? Oh, that's too ambiguous for that. So the detectives are like, bet. And they went over to Register's house to talk to Shirley. And she's she refused to go down to the station. But she said she'd write a note. So she wrote, I ain't going down there with you bunch of pigs, but I'll write you a damn note. Right. Get the hell out of my house. (laughs) So she wrote, Ken, I love you. I know where you were at. We know when you left the racetrack and I know when you got home, I'll stand by you. I love you, mama. Detectives head back to the police station and were like, yeah, we're definitely not showing him that note. And instead they told Ken they'd talked to his mama and she had said that she wanted him to tell the truth. They started back with a, why'd you do it? I didn't do it. Oh, my mama, that whole routine. Until Detective Knowles decided to bring the Lord into it. Because Detective Knowles is smart. So, Ken, he was known to be this good Christian boy. Like, the day, like, that Saturday that Crystal, because I, I guess it's sometime between, like, 11.30 and 12.30. It's like an hour long. So, it's, like, late November 16th, early November 17th. That November 16th, he had been, like, building pews for the church and shit. So, like, he he's known as the church, a church kid. So, Detective Knowles asked him. Have you asked God to forgive you for what you've done? And Ken put his face in his hands and cried. And Noel said, look at me and answer the question. Ken sobbed for like five minutes. And Noel's asked him again, have you asked God to forgive you what you've done? And Ken said, yes. Noel's asked him to tell him about it. So Ken started his confession. He said he had driven home from the go-kart track where he'd spent the evening with his girlfriend. Side note, I did not include this earlier. His girlfriend was 14. It's pretty rough. And he was 18. So that is both mind-boggling and illegal. And I think I say it later, but they've been dating for like a year, over a year at that point, which mean that means that he was dating a 13-year-old. So that's great. So anyway, he's on his way home and he sees Crystal at a red light and he honks at her and he rolls down his window and they talk for a second and they drive over to the middle school parking lot where Crystal leaves her car and gets into Ken's Blue Plymouth Sundance. They drive out to the lover's lane. They start kissing. One thing leads to another, and they end up having consensual sex, according to Ken. When they're done, Crystal gets pissed when she realizes that Ken hadn't worn a condom and he'd ejaculated inside of her. 
She gets out of the car to put her clothes back on and she's yelling at him, telling him that if she gets pregnant, she's going to tell everybody that he raped her. He said he was confused and angry and wanted her to stop hollering. So he grabbed a knife that he kept in his console and started stabbing her. He said he couldn't remember any other details because it was just all a big blur. He dragged Crystal's body over to the ditch, threw his knife as far as he could and sped home. He said he didn't get very bloody, which I don't know how. He talked to his mama when he got home. Miss Bonnie called, he talked to her and then he went to bed. Now, people in the community were shocked when they learned that Ken Register had been arrested for Crystal's murder. Like, Ken Register? Sweet little church-going football-playing Ken? He was a pallbearer at her funeral. There ain't no way. So, although investigators have a confession and DNA evidence, they realize how unbelievable it might seem for Ken to be the murderer. They want to make sure they had everything against him that they could. So, they start digging. And as it turns out, Ken was not the sweet little good old boy Christian that they thought he was. Shocker. First, they learned from the manager of a local convenience store that Ken came in every morning from about the time of the murder until his arrest and bought adult magazines every single day. She said that he bought all the new editions of over two dozen different magazines. One day she's suddenly like, so like, what are you doing with all those magazines? And he's like, oh, I'm buying them for my boss and he pays me back later. And his boss would later confirm that that was not true. That's like every day you're buying booby magazines. That, that's weird. It's, very, it's very awkward behavior. Yes. But that's just some dirty magazines. Like no big deal, right? Well, as solicitor, and I think I have this later, I'm going to say it now too. Solicitor is just a uh, uh, district attorney in South Carolina. Solicitor Ralph Wilson was gearing up for Ken's trial. And he discovered that Ken had actually been in trouble with the law two months prior to Crystal's murder. Ken was driving through the campus of Coastal Carolina College on his way to a math class at Ori Georgetown Technical the College. The The what? Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. That's the mascot. What it's is a, it's a it's a a rooster, a chicken, basically. That, remember that? No, never mind. Remember the <laughs> the cartoon movie with the they steal the rooster and take him to the city, and he sings like Elvis. Rockadoodle. Yes, his name is Chanticleer. <laughs> That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Dots are being connected for me right now. Chanticleer. That's just a cool word. It sounds like Cajuny to me. Yeah. Chanticleer. I like it. So they're like the fighting roosters, basically, then. Mm-hmm. So he was driving through Coastal Carolina College on his way to a math class at Ori Georgetown Technical College when he stopped two freshmen to ask for directions to the library. Also, again, I didn't say he was going to the library. He's going to a math class. But he's asking for directions to the library on a college that he doesn't go to. According to an hour to kill, quote, one of the young women had noticed Ken unfastening his pants and said so to her friend. Ken pulled forward and passed the young women, then abruptly swung his car around. He drove back past them and said, excuse me, to the women who turned to look again. Ken pushed up his body, arched his back, and shook his exposed genitals at the women and said, come and get it. As Ken drove away, one of the girls remembered something her mama had always told her, so she yelled after Ken, hey, wait. And when he hit the brakes, the girl wrote down his license plate number, like a boss. (laughs) The girls immediately reported the incident to campus police and police were able to trace the license plate back to Shirley register. When they asked about where her car was on that day, she told police, cause they didn't give her any context about like what yeah. had happened. So she was like, Oh, my son Ken was driving the car that day. When the police told her what he had done, of course, not my boy. She couldn't believe that her son would do such a thing. And Ken told the police in front of Shirley that he had not been on coastal Carolina's campus that day. And he certainly hadn't exposed himself to anyone. 
spoiler alert, he's a little bit of a liar. The police brought, because think about it. These girls, they see it. They write down the license plate and they immediately go to police. Like, do they just, would they just pick a license plate number out of thin air just to fuck with somebody? Like, why? Yeah. I love key sense. worry about shit like that for, for our kiddo. Oh, I've been, dudes out here, I just. Ugh. I, when I, I actually think, Christine, if you're listening, I think you were with me. So when I was in college, I went to Books A Million and I got flashed in the Books A Million. Like this dude was like squatting, wearing like basketball shorts and no underwear underneath. And he like asked for help or whatever, like very clearly exposing his junk to me. It's life as a lady, like you're going to see a wiener you don't want to see. Um, which that is not me minimizing it. That's just saying that how shitty it is to be a woman because you have to see wieners that you don't want to see. So the women brought the two women, in, the police brought the two women in to pick the flasher from a photo lineup. And one of the women chose Ken within about 30 seconds. Ken was arrested and released on bond. Solicitor Wilson knew that the only way he would be able to use the genital exposure incident in the murder trial would be if Ken was actually convicted. So he decided to try to try him for that first, which was very smart. As you say, play chess, not checkers. Mm -hmm. So during that trial, Ken refused to admit to actually flashing the girls. He said he just put his hand near his crotch and shook his hand, I guess doing like the jack off motion. He told the court, though, I was wrong. It was wrong for me to do. I'm sorry for it. It was a stupid thing. He did admit that he lied to the police when they asked if he'd been on campus. But he said it was because he didn't want to break mama and daddy's heart. You freaking turn the defense attorney in that trial was gross by the way his attitude was basically so he maybe flashes wiener at some college girls like what's the big deal in his closing statements the defense attorney martin said the state made a mountain out of a molehill in bringing the charges against ken quote they've done a lot of ugly talking about this kid he's scared to death he thought it was a prank a joke what about streakers are we gonna call all them trash how many kids don't moon somebody end quote First of all, I'm not here for the mountain out of a molehill comment because he literally sexually harassed those women. Mm -hmm. And as I as I said a minute ago, women don't want to see dudes gross ass wieners while they're walking to class. As we learned in the last episode, put your wiener away. Seriously. Like I feel like he might have changed his tune if dudes randomly pulled their junk out and flashed him. Like you don't want to be walking just mind your own business and there's a wiener. Secondly, mooning somebody is not the same as whipping your dick out. Totally different things, but I also don't want to see anybody's butt. So everybody just keep your yeah. pants on. Keep your pants on. Put away your wieners and your buttholes. Ken was ultimately found guilty of the indecent exposure and believe, uh, and I believe he was sentenced to a year in prison. After it was reported that Ken Register had been arrested for Crystal's murder, police were contacted by first grade teacher Kathy Cruz. In 1988, Kathy had taken her car to Ken's uncle's repair shop to get fixed. She left her phone number with them so that they could let her know when her car was ready. And that night, she received the first of over 100 obscene phone calls. The calls were incredibly graphic and sexual in nature and included threats that were similar to what had happened to Crystal, including references to anal rape and threats to cut her open. Kathy and her mother received up to 10 calls a day, and they were afraid to even leave their house because the caller said that he knew where they lived and he was going to get them. Kathy went to the police and the phone company, but it was 1988 and they couldn't trace the phone calls. Kathy was like, fine, if y'all can't help, I'll figure this out my damn self. So the next time the creep called, 
She kept him on the phone, telling him, like, you're sick, you need help. Because what she was doing is she was trying to listen for noises in the background to see if she could figure out where he might be. Well, she heard one noise that clicked for her. He's calling from a garage. And then she realized, wait, these calls started the day that I dropped my car off at the garage to get fixed. So Kathy goes down to the muffler shop and tells the owner, Ken's uncle, hey, some pervert is making the same phone calls from here. The uncle was apologetic, but he was like, yeah, there's nobody that works here that would do something like that. Well, Kathy noticed the boy that helped her when she dropped her car off and she found out his name, Ken Register. So she looks his phone number up and calls him. He calls his house. And when he answers the phone, she immediately recognizes his voice. So she marched down to the police station. She updated them on the situation and they put a warrant out for Ken. Well, after she got home, she got another call and she was pissed and she was like, nope, not today. So she drove down to the muffler shop, stormed inside and yelled, Ken, get over here. Ken saw the woman coming towards him. And before she could even say anything, he said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Which that's definitely a behavior of an innocent person. Just this woman's going, I didn't do it. Okay. What did you not do? Kathy ripped that boy a new one in front of God and everybody and demanded an apology. He kept saying, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, which that infuriates me. I didn't mean to. Like, did you accidentally make over a hundred phone calls threatening to rape and murder somebody? Like, that's not an I didn't mean to kind of situation. You don't, you don't not mean to do that. So Ken was served an arrest warrant for unlawful use of a telephone on July 12th, 1988. He did admit in front of his uncle and the arresting officer that he had made the calls, but I bet you he denied it to his mama. When they got Ken down to the jail, they realized that he was only 15 years old. So they released him and turned the case over to the Department of Youth Services. According to the Sun News, though, the State Department of Youth Services said it didn't learn the case was turned over to their agency until the murder trial, which was four years after the incident. Conway Police Captain Donald Boyd, get ready for this, testified in court that he'd personally given a copy of the police report to Betty Register a clerk at the youth services office and Ken's aunt. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Ken's trial for the rape and murder of Crystal Faye Todd began in January, 1993. I'm not confident. I think it was 93. I should know that. I'm sorry. I wrote this last night. As we know, the state was armed with DNA evidence, the confession, the obscene phone calls and the indecent exposure. Plus, like I said, they found the empty knife box. They, um, they found blood in his car. Someone testified that like for a, a few days or a week after the murder, like he drove his mama's car. He said that like his car was in the shop for like a computer issue or whatever. He had his car detailed twice. He had new tires put on um, all very. So they had like legit evidence and then a lot of also circumstantial evidence. The judge ruled that they couldn't use the same phone calls though, which is kind of bullshit. They did use it in the penalty phase though. But Solicitor Wilson was still confident that they had a strong case. The defense's whole thing was basically, uh, A, DNA isn't reliable. B, his confession was coerced. And C, he had an alibi. His mama, he was home with his mama. So defense attorney Martin Morgan, nope, Morgan Martin, who's a giant turd, said that DNA is, quote, a science of estimation, presumption, and indecision, end quote, which that aged like an avocado. And he did his best to try to discredit SLED's forensic experts. At one point, the DNA analyst 
um, said that she believed something was correct. So like, I guess he had asked her a question and her answer was like, yes, I believe that is correct. And Martin said, you're trying to put him in the electric chair and you believe. And Solicitor Wilson yelled out, she's not trying to put him in the electric chair. He put himself in there. Then the defense attorneys tried to get the judge to declare a mistrial because they said that Wilson's comment was prejudicial. But the judge was like, my dude, you're the one that brought up the electric chair. Like you, he just, he was just responding to what you said. They did a lot of grasping at straws. So after about four hours of deliberation, the jury found Johnny Kenneth Register II guilty of murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, kidnapping, buggery, and sodomy. Miss Bonnie and Solicitor Wilson were hoping the jury would give Ken what he deserved, which was death, but because he was only 18 at the time of the murder, the jury sentenced him to life for the murder, 30 years for the criminal sexual conduct, and five years for the buggery and sodomy. Ken and fucking Shirley Register have been adamant that Ken is innocent. They appealed to the South Carolina Supreme Court saying that his confession was coerced. It wasn't. The DNA evidence wasn't reliable. It was. And that police violated his Fifth Amendment rights because he said he wasn't going to talk about it until he talked to his mama. Well, as we discussed earlier, his mama ain't a lawyer. He was read his Miranda rights. And he's the one that didn't remain silent. So he didn't have a leg to stand on. Like, in those situations, unless you ask for a lawyer, like, that you're, that's, that's your bad. Maybe don't be such a mama's boy. So the Supreme Court upheld his convictions and sentences. In the year 2000, Ken requested a new trial and in his deposition admitted to smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol, and having sex in his car about two dozen times. And again, please keep in mind that he was 18 and his girlfriend at the time, whom he had been dating for like a year and a half, was 14. Him and his mother also decided to pursue the, when all else fails, Let's smear the victim defense and allege that Crystal was a drug addict, possibly a drug dealer and a whore. In her deposition, Shirley said, quote, you read in the statements where she would be at a party and she would leave this boy and later she could come and be gone with another one or two or three. End quote. She said, first of all, Bonnie Faye should have gone and beat the absolute shit out of Shirley Register. And I have no doubt that oh, Bonnie, yeah. Faye, Bonnie Faye could have done it. She was not a woman that played. Secondly, her son admitted to fucking people all over the inside of his car, but it's okay for him to be a slut, but not Crystal. We love a good double standard. Thankfully, the courts called bullshit again and did not grant Ken a new trial. I would like to take a moment to discuss Ken's shit-ass family. Miss Bonnie was spot on in her Forensic Files episode when she said of Shirley in particular, quote, I think there's a lot of covering up going on in that house. She's seen him covered in blood all over, and I know he was covered in blood all over. He had to be, and if she helped him clean up, she's got Crystal's blood on her hands, too, end quote. I absolutely think that Shirley helped her, uh, her shit-ass son and covered for him, the same way she refused to believe that he flashed those girls. I can't decide if Shirley is DeLulu or a psychopath. Like, on Forensic Files, she sounds like this sweet little Southern lady, but I get very evil vibes from her. Like, she... She's got evil behind her eyes. At the end of the day, Shirley Register sucks. Her stupid douche canoe of a son sucks. Her shifty ass sister in law Betty sucks. It didn't that basically hid his obscene phone call charges. And her belligerent ass husband sucks too. And especially fucked them for trying to tarnish Crystal's reputation. Now here's one thing that y'all need to know about me. As my husband knows, I'm a petty ass patty. Due to that fact. I did a little exploring on the 
Horry County Court's website and would love to share some information with y'all. On, a, on October 11th, 1990, Betty Register was charged with fraudulent, fraudulent use of checks and fined $68. On February 26, 1991, Betty Register was charged with fraudulent use of checks and fined $137. On July 19, 1991, Betty Register was charged with fraudulent use of checks and fined $148. Why they just be letting Betty Register like write bad checks like three times? I think she should have gotten in a little bit more trouble than having to pay like $300. On March 15, 1992, Johnny K. Register I was charged with a violation of ABC law and fined $148. So I have all these written out. I'm not going to bore all of you, but just know in September of 1999, uh, Ken's daddy was charged with being a drunk pedestrian uh, and also for violating ABC commission rule. In February of 2000, he was charged with having alcohol in a motor vehicle with the seal broken. On that day, he was also charged with breach of peace, non-aggravated in nature. That fine cost him $500. In November of 2002, he was charged with speeding, going 65 and a 55. In September of 2009, he was charged with improper start of a vehicle, which I don't even know what, what that is. Uh, in mm. August of 2014, he was charged with speeding, more than 10 miles over, but less than 15. He was also charged with passing unlawfully and a seatbelt violation in 2018. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 10 different charges for uh, Mr. Johnny Kenneth Register the first. And then on July 5th, 1996, Shirley Register was charged with seatbelt article violation and fined $14. They're all trash and I hate them. Um, and I hope they all step on a Lego every day while they're barefoot for the rest of their lives. Miss Bonnie Faye Todd passed away on September the 3rd, 2014, about a month shy of her 80th birthday. She's buried next to Crystal and her husband, Junior B. Todd, in the High Point Baptist Church Cemetery in Conway. Detective Bill Knowles told ABC 15 News, There's no question in my mind the loss of her daughter devastated her more so than any other family member I've ever dealt with. Solicitor Ralph Wilson remained close to Miss Bonnie up until her death. He said that he would that she'd bring him um, collards and uh, pecans, and I forget something else, uh, which is very old country lady stuff to do. For sure. He told ABC 15 News, if she's going to heaven, and I do believe she will, she'll see Crystal there. And I think that will give her the peace that she is searching for. Crystal's death really did devastate Miss Bonnie, and she literally lived my nightmare. She loses her husband, then her baby, her only child was brutally murdered and she had to live another 20 years alone it's heartbreaking in my notes i literally what wrote i'm tearing up as i'm writing this so it'll be an absolute miracle if i made it through the story without crying at least once and i did not so if you are a glutton for punishment you can find crystal's episode of forensic files on youtube it's called the alibi i have cried every single time i've ever watched it because watching miss bonnie talk about how much she missed crystal will literally rip your heart out um they also show pictures of the crime scene, including pictures of Crystal's body, although you can't see any pictures of any of her wounds. Despite being stabbed in the face three times and having her throat slashed so viciously that she was almost decapitated, Crystal had an open casket visitation, and they show they show it on the episode. Also, one really stupid thing that has always bugged me about this episode is that when, when describing Crystal, her cousin Kevin says, quote, she was very lively, good personality, Good personality. Nope. Good person Natalie. Yeah, he's a good good person personality. I can't even say it. Personality? Nope. He said person Natalie. Personality? Yeah. 
and it bugs me. <laughs> I don't know if like that's how he always says it or if he just misspoke and they didn't, they just left it in, but it bothers me. So there is a lot of information about this case that I didn't cover. But if you want to learn more, I highly recommend the book, An Hour to Kill, A True Story of Love, Murder, and Justice in a Small Town. Southern Fried True Crime does a great episode on the case, as as do the Small Town Murders podcast. I think their episode is called A Dumb Ted Bundy and uh, the Carolina Crimes podcast. Their podcast is, is nothing but South Carolina Crimes. If you want to watch something about the case, definitely go with the Forensic Files episode, especially since it's free. I did watch an episode of Stolen Voices Buried Secrets, but I do not recommend it. It's like they had the ghost of Crystal with a very shitty Southern accent narrating it, and it was weird. So I paid $2 so that you don't have to. Two more things about this case, and then I'll start to wrap this shit up. The first is that I was sad to learn that Crystal's best friend, Carla Allen, died in 1995 at age 21 in a car accident. After Crystal died, it really hit Carla how short and fragile life could be. So it's even sadder that she also died young. Second thing. So back when Ken was sentenced in South Carolina, a life sentence automatically came with an opportunity for parole. Ken Register was up for parole in 2022, but for whatever reason, he waived his right to a parole hearing. He's supposed to be up for parole again this month. I set a Google alert with his name, so hopefully I can keep track of it. Prior to his 2022 parole what was supposed to be his 2022 parole hearing, someone started an online petition for the parole board to not grant him parole. And I'm going to imagine that someone will do the same thing this time. If that happens, I'm going to let everyone know so that we can all go sign it and hopefully keep that monster in prison. That was why I included all of the the gruesome details to illustrate what a monster Ken Register is. And it's been pointed out several times that People are pretty confident Ken Richter was a serial killer who just so happened to get caught after his first murder. Like he had escalated from obscene phone calls to exposing himself to rape and murder. And I don't think he would have stopped, especially with his mama, who's going to defend him against anything. So that is the case of Crystal Faye Todd, which, as I mentioned earlier, was also the first murder case in South Carolina to use DNA. Rob, what are your final thoughts? It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, uh, it it hurts my heart to think about what she went through. And the thing that really got me was in the book when it said that that Bonnie Faye had said to Ken, like, you know, I bet I bet that your name was the last name on her lips or whatever. And it probably was just not for the reason that Miss Bonnie was thinking. Yeah, I, I hope that that shit tore him up inside. It probably didn't. Probably not. I mean, he was a freaking pallbearer, which apparently he declined, but Miss Bonnie was like, no, you have to be one. So he did it. But I hate him. And I hope that he gets the shit beat out of him regularly in prison. I hope that everything that was done to her, I hope he ha- is done to him regularly because he deserves it. So thank y'all so much for listening to the It's Murder Y'all podcast. As always, sources for this episode will be listed in the show notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, tell your mama. We'll see y'all next week. Lord willing, and the freak don't rise. Holla, y'all.